0: the Oak Point West Bloomfield podcast. We're a community of people who keep it real and believe that the gospel is such good news, and we hope we can encourage you along the way as we pursue Jesus together. All right, well, welcome to Oak Point Church West Bloomfield. If you're a guest with us, welcome. Um, I'm your pastor, Joe Seestat, lead pastor here at Oak Point Church West Bloomfield. And uh, it's great to be here with you. We are in week two of a series. We're going week by week through the book of Romans. And I mentioned last week that the book of Romans is filled with a lot lot of very divisive topics. Um, It's truth, though, that's like a bedrock for the faith. And so today we're going to get into something more like that. Uh, A warning for parents with your kids in here, if there are any. This is probably PG-13 today. Uh, That's your warning. So... (laughs) Last week, we talked about looking at the very first chapter, the very first half of the chapter of Romans. We saw how God really wants us to be free in our obligations. Normally, when we think about an obligation... It's something that's like restricting on us. It feels bad and burdensome. But God actually wants you to be free in your obligations toward Him. He does have obligations for you. And so we looked at how we do that. And the way we do that is to realize that we're called for the gospel, that we're committed to the gospel, and that we can be confident in the gospel. And so I hope you left here last week, kind of sizing up the things that you're doing in life that feel like you're only doing them because you're obligated to it. And you'd reassess, how is that, how's that thing that I'm doing, something I could do to please the Lord. The claim I have for you today, as we start this pivotal chapter of the end of Romans chapter one, is that God stands against all injustice. God stands against all injustice. We could look at the hatred that exists in the world. We could look at at terrible acts that happen against people and oppress them. And we could realize that those things are wrong and that we look for somebody who will stand against those things. And we applaud it when it happens. I played on a hockey team for a lot of my youth years. And when I was on a hockey team about 13 years old, we were in this game, we were playing another team from Metro Detroit. And the way the game was going, was extra chippy. It was like a lot of penalties in the game. There were sticks kind of flying everywhere. There were words on the ice. And there's this one scramble in front of our net and our goalie got ran into by the other team. And any of you who have been around hockey, you realize that goalies, there's, they're, they're a couple clicks off, you know. So <laughs> um, our goalie starts wailing on this guy, starts hitting him, and he gets thrown out of the game, gets a game misconduct. It's about halfway through the game. We put our backup in. So the goalie, after a few minutes, is coming out of the locker room, game's, you know, halfway through. And he goes to the spot where you go when you're not allowed to go back to the bench, which is like the common hangout place in hockey, which is the snack bar. (laughs) So he goes to the snack bar and he is, um, and and the parents are mostly in the stands, some are in the snack bar, some are sort of in the vicinity. And the goalie is 13 year old. He gets confronted by a 40 year old man a guy from the other team. All the parents were yelling and things like this uh, during the game, but this man confronted this 13-year-old and started to get in his face. And then he uh, began to grab him by the shirt in anger toward what happened as an opposing player's parents. Now, um, I learned a valuable lesson that day, and it's that you don't want to mess with B. And those who know B, it's my mom, and she was in the vicinity, and my mom saw what was going down, and she sprinted over to the altercation. She put herself between the 40-year-old man and this 13-year-old boy, and she just got up in the man's face and said, no, (laughs) and that guy backed down, (laughs) and B is celebrated, you know, (laughs) B, the one who stands for injustice, and we celebrate those things. We celebrate it when somebody is able to see something wrong in the world and just stand against it and say, no, we're not having any more of that. Well, the problem is that when it comes to God, the greatest injustice that you could think of in all of the world is rebellion against God. And I wanna say that again, just to make sure that you're hearing what I'm saying. The greatest rebellion and the greatest injustice in the world is rebellion against God. The greatest injustice is rebellion against God. And you might be thinking, well, I don't believe that. It's, It's God, he ought to have broad enough shoulders to take any rejection, as if it's somehow okay to violate God as if he's somehow not big enough to tolerate the injustice toward him. Well, he is big enough. The reality is that we serve a God that's perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. God is love. God brings the abundant life. But one topic that's hard for us to speak about is that God will stand perfectly against every injustice toward him. The the question's how. It's that our holy, loving, and perfect God, because he is a just God, he will deliver his wrath on every injustice, on every rebellion against him. And guys, I don't use the word wrath casually here. This is a sensitive topic about God's wrath. Because every one of us deserves the wrath of God. Every single one of us deserves to have God's holy wrath come upon us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You're going to hear me say that a few times today. It's the reality that none of us like to be judged, but we are under God's judgment. It's it's commonplace for us, especially as Christians, to be tempted to look at everybody else's wrongs. And point out what they've done wrong. Our righteous anger can turn towards sinful condemnation toward others. But the message today about God's wrath is not a message of condemnation, it's a message of salvation. It's a message that this message will let our minds at times wander to think about everybody else who needs God's wrath or judgment against them. And, and the moment we do that, that's the very definition of depravity. When we think that somebody else is guilty that and we're not. And so day, today, I want to encourage you as we finish Romans chapter one, to tune in to the mercy that God wants for you and that God wants for others. Today, we're not calling down fire from heaven, we're looking up to the cross. Let's go. A few reasons why every one of us deserves the wrath of God. Here's the first one, God reveals himself to us through creation, but we honor created things. Verse 18, So they are without excuse for all they, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise. They became fools in exchange, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It starts off right away talking about God's wrath, how God's wrath has been revealed so that everybody can see. And the first part of that is to realize before we talk about the wrath of God that's been revealed, to talk about that God has been revealed. God himself has been revealed. And one way that God has been revealed is through his creation. Any person, any human being can look up into the sky at nighttime and look at all of the stars assess the fact that we live on an earth that has a perfect temperature and climate for us and provides what we need to live and ask the broad question, how did we get here? How did all of these things get here? Any person can wonder when they get the next paper cut, how it's possible that your blood when it clots, doesn't clot to lead you to death so your blood stops moving and it doesn't not clot to lead you to death. And they can realize that you have been touched by the intelligent designer and every complex organ in your body that works is not the product and wasn't invented through some way of evolution that we just naturally got here on accident. You can look at the Ecosystem around you and realize how there is an order to every single thing in our world life and death. You can study cellular biology and astronomy and physics and genetics and ecology and meteorology and anthropology and all of theologies to realize that nobody is with an excuse. You can't get away with claiming ignorance toward the existence of God. That's what it says in verse 20. It says, so they are without excuse. We can observe these things. Everybody is held accountable to realize that God exists. But we can also observe the wrath of God. We can see how God brought his judgment to Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned and rebelled against God, and how through their one sin, death came to all people. We can see God's wrath as he allowed only eight surviving human beings at the flood as judgment against mankind who had gone wayward in their ways. We can look at the justice that took place against the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah, how entire towns were living a depraved way and God brought his judgment We can look at Pharaoh and his army and how God allowed them to be swallowed up in the Red Sea because Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We can look at these things and see that God's wrath has been revealed. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's probably writing it from Corinth. And around him at that day, there were a lot of There's a lot of idol worship going on. There are temples and gods and goddesses. And so as Paul is writing this letter, he's realizing how people have served and honored the created things like these gods and goddesses and altars. The apostle Paul was probably remembering things like how the Jewish people made the golden calf. Literally while while Moses was up talking to God on the mountain, they were down worshiping and honoring a created thing he's probably remembering how back hundreds of years before that that the jewish people were building altars and they were offering sacrifices to unknown gods or to gods that were not the one and true god these idols these created things that people worshiped time and time again and yet it says here in verse 25 they exchanged the truth about god for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator So that was them. And while we don't have a lot of temples of Artemis in our midst and we don't have a lot of gods and goddesses being worshipped around the church today, we do honor created things. We honor things like sports and entertainment where we will adjust our schedule to make sure that we get to that on time, but oftentimes at the sacrifice of how are we doing in our relationship with the Lord, am I right? We do things like we honor money and career. No problem working the 60 hour week, even though we don't barely see our families, or have time with God because we know that we are tethered to the paycheck that comes on the end of that pay period. We honor things like science and philosophy, anything that the mind can design and think that they've come up with or they've invented, not realizing that it's the creator that gave you the mind to do that in the first place. Martin Lloyd Jones, a preacher from the early uh, 1900s, he said of how mankind grew so affixed to things like philosophy, philosophy that it can be, quote, traced to an hour when man began to turn from revelation to philosophy. See, God has revealed so much to us, and yet our human minds take it, to ourselves and we start to prop ourselves up as if we're important and as if we're the ones that created something instead of worshiping the creator. That is the problem. And yet the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Every single person is under the wrath of God and deserves the wrath of God without an intervention. It says in verse 24, that God gave them up. And and that might be a little troubling for some of us just to think about. Like, God gave them up. What exactly does that mean? And, And here's the best that I can do to unpack that. God is love. Love is a choice. It would be unloving, it would be restrictive, and it would be forcing somebody out of obligation if they made you love them, right? So our God, because our God is infinitely holy, infinitely loving, our God offers a choice. Our God offers us a choice whether we are going to love him or not. And at some point, when we have rejected God long enough, when we have rebelled against God, the greatest injustice of the world, God will choose to restrain himself from protecting us any longer. God will take his sovereign hand and allow the person that is saying, I don't want anything to do with you, to just fall into their sin. And God will give them up. Every one of us deserves. The wrath of God. God is a creator, and we have rebelled. We've rebelled against the natural created order that God has put in place. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and and that's the first reason. Here's another reason why we all deserve God's wrath it's because God reveals himself to us through commands, but we pursue forbidden passions. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This whole section is really under the umbrella of forbidden passions. And I want you to listen real close here because we're probably all walking in that door with a presupposition about the topic at hand. We're gonna be talking about homosexuality. We're gonna talk about same-sex sexual relationships, and I guarantee that every one of you has walked in that door with something that you are bringing in around this topic. And before we go there, I just wanna say that the umbrella is everything that's a forbidden passion. Every time that we've been commanded something from God to do things his way and we have gone on lust or desire of our own heart and done it our way instead, it's a sin. So the list is long on the sexual side of things. Lust is a sin. Porn is a sin. Fornication is a sin. Adultery is a sin. Divorce is a sin homosexuality is a sin. And there is none in that list that is any worse than the other one. Every one of those, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We deserve God's wrath for. And so with this topic of forbidden passions, and especially with same-sex sexual relationships, there's really, there's the position that we have through the Bible, and then there's the posture there's the position and there's the posture. I want to first cover the position. There, there's a lot of scripture that talks, Old and New Testament, about things relating to forbidden passions that relate to sex. And really the two clearest passages that give um, very clear information, more so, I think, than the others, about what God's design is for sexual relationships is from Genesis chapter 2 and the scripture that we're in right now, Romans 1, 26 to 27. From Genesis 2, we get a look at what God's design is for marriage, for a sexual relationship, for a loving relationship one to another. It says, therefore, in Genesis 2, 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what we see here is that According to Scripture, marriage is between one man and his wife, bound together forever. And we see then that there is a way that we deviate. Sometimes it's to do with same-sex sex relationships. So that gets down to the Romans 126 to27, which we just read. What we see here is very clearly, that the pursuit of same-sex sexual relationships is a sin. Woman with woman, man with man, just like all of these other sins, is going against God's design for how he wanted things to be. And so at this church, we read the word, our position is that marriage is between one man and his wife, bound together forever forever, in that the pursuit of relationships that are sexual in nature between people of the same sex is considered to be a sin by God. That's our position. But what's our posture? It's one thing to have the truth, but we've got to understand where's the grace? What's our posture toward this? In other words, What would Jesus do? You know, what would he do when we're talking about the topic at hand from Romans chapter one, verses 26 and 27? And it's hard to know just based on watching what's recorded of Jesus in the Gospels, what he would do because the topic of same-sex sexual relationships is not something that was explained in the Gospels at all. And so we've got to kind of think about what is something on par with what we're experiencing today, and what we're seeing in the scripture today, with, with what Jesus saw in his day. And I would argue that one way to look at this is the story of Zacchaeus, the story of tax collecting. That Jesus gave Zacchaeus, his posture was to give him an unconditional welcome. Welcome. And and here's how the story goes. In Luke chapter 19 verses 1 through 10 is the story of Jesus meeting Zacchaeus. It says this, he entered Jericho and was passing through and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. If you don't understand the context of tax collecting back in Zacchaeus' day, in Jesus' day, realize this. It was on par with the hatred, with the uh, negative input, with the view of people who tax-collected against the Jewish people. They saw a tax collector the same way often that Christians see people who struggle with same-sex attraction. There are some equivalents here. Both the tax collector who's extorting people for money, and the person who's engaging in homosexual actions is pursuing forbidden passions. Both are shunned often to the outside. Both are usually in a position where they become loners in the religious circles that they're running in. Both Often have curiosities about Jesus at times. Both regret often the actions that they've taken. It's possible that same sex sexual relationships are on par with the modern day tax collecting from Jesus's day. And I want you to see something important here. Jesus made the first move, Jesus shows Zacchaeus. His posture was to lean in, to go toward this person who was doing such wrong things to the people. He gave him an unconditional welcome. You know what happened? Zacchaeus went closer to the Lord, Jesus. Zacchaeus repented, which means to turn around. He turned around from the life that he had been living, and he decided to instead turn to Christ. You know what? Jesus forgave him. It's a, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus saved Zacchaeus that day from the wrath of God. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, it says, As he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I want you to realize something important here. Jesus called Zacchaeus to repent and be holy, not merely to move away from extorting people. Do you guys see that? It wasn't just a call to stop extorting people. It was a call to move toward him in holiness. Similarly, God is calling those who act on same sex, sexual relationships to repent and to be holy not merely to move away from pursuing homosexuality. It's because God is concerned with the heart, not merely the action. I'm going to take a lesson from Renee's spoken word and exhort this over us this morning. Here's the good news. God's holiness shouldn't make us cringe because he's perfect that means he cannot sin against us. He cannot do wrong to us. His purity is an outflow of his kindness toward us. His demand for our holiness is a command to become royalty, to proudly wear the name of Christianity and to act in such a way that the whole world can see that our God really is as good as he claims to be. It's important that we all understand what God is calling us to when he says, be holy as I am holy, because he's not calling sinners to suffer in loneliness. He's calling his beloved children to experience his wholeness. He's not saying be heterosexual. He's saying, be with me, be like me, be satisfied by who you are in me. I will fill every hole of your heart with my healing. I will soothe your empty place with the grace of my redeeming. I'm not giving you a counterfeit comfort that will cover your wound like a band-aid. I'm not letting you find your fix with a relationship that's man-made. You've been handmade by me. And I want nothing less for you than what's absolutely best for you. I'm not taking something away to leave you wanting. I'm here to stay and prove you are never alone. You are my precious possession, wholly known. Your sexuality isn't your identity any more than your gossip, selfishness, or gluttony. Your passion for pleasure points to your divine need. Your identity is tied completely to me. I am the one who sets you free. So be holy. God's position for those who are struggling in this room with same-sex attraction is that he's calling you to a life of holiness. He wants you to come close to him. He doesn't want you to merely drop the act. He wants your heart, and he is going to give you an unconditional welcome when you do. And look, for those who are struggling, what a hard life to live. What a difficult weight to go through, being in a Christian environment and having to deal with this weight around your ankle. We as a church have a position. Our position is that same-sex sexual relationships is a sin among a list of a whole lot of other sins, but we also have a posture, friends. We have a posture to be a church who is going to give people the welcome of Zacchaeus to come close to them and not reject them, not push them further to the outside and not make them more of loners than what they have to go through right now on their own. It's a hard life for these people. And we wanna be a church that sees them and helps them. All sexual sin, lust, porn, adultery, divorce, Fornication, homosexuality carries an equal weight on that cross right there. Jesus shed the same amount of blood for every one of those sins because the ground is level at the foot of that cross. So we will not judge. The Bible says in Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. With the measure you use, It will be measured to you. I have to say one more thing on this topic. Just like in Paul's day, when he wrote this letter, there was a context at play. There was um, same-sex, sexual, domineering relationships happening all over the place in ancient Greco-Roman world, especially in Corinth so he's seeing this going on and he had a he had a context that he was writing this well we have a context also same sex sexual relationships have become celebrated in our culture and your identity whether you're gay or straight or some other sexual orientation is what the culture wants to label you with It's kind of like I like to eat donuts. And so I don't go to Life Group on Thursday night at the Williams house and I don't walk in the door and they're like, hey, there's Donut Eater. You know, like just because I like donuts doesn't mean that my identity is a donut eater. Our culture is taking exactly what we see here and worshiping and serving the created things and not the creator and the culture will tell you to follow your heart and that's like the worst news that you could listen to <laughs> Jeremiah 17:9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it so when people say follow your heart we who trust in the word of god who are filled with the holy spirit and follow the lord jesus we have to instead guard our hearts Our our job is to guard our hearts and not just trust our heart. Your heart will deceive you. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, isn't it? You know, every one of us, every one of us deserves the condemnation of God's wrath. Here's one more reason as if we haven't seen enough. This one's sort of the catch-all. God reveals himself to us through our conscience but we commit irrational sins, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient of parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This one is a little bit easier to see. It's kind of like pick a sin, any sin. And <laughs> in in, some of you might be wondering, like, what... I don't quite get it. Like what's so bad about a little sin or like, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm generally a good person. If God were to grade me, maybe it's a C plus. Well, it's this, it's this reality is that um, in the Bible, it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if you've baked bread before, you put a little yeast in there, a little yeast goes a long way in in a lump of dough. Similarly, what the Bible is showing us is that just a little bit of sin It spoils the whole lump. A little bit of sin in God's righteous kingdom that we will be wanting to be in with no sin, a little bit of sin ruins the whole thing. It ruins the whole experience. Our God is perfect, He is holy, He is righteous, and He doesn't want any sin at all. And so every sin, is a problem. Every sin is an offense toward God that needs to be taken care of. In this passage, it lists a whole bunch of sins. It's like an all-inclusive list. It starts in verse 29 talking about unrighteousness. Let's define a few of these and see if if, we, if we can answer yes to any of the above. Are Are you unrighteous? Well, have you ever in your entire life, done anything imperfect before, (laughs) well, then you're unrighteous in God's eyes. Evil, it's any thoughts or action, even a thought that you've had that's been negative and wished harm on somebody else. Envy, any time that you've looked at somebody else, what they've got, their job, their money, their wife, their husband, where they live, their relationships and you have wished that they didn't have it but you had it instead foolish any bad call that you've ever made in life because you did it alone and didn't consult with God <laughs> and then the last one in verse 28 it talks about giving approval to those who practice them any time that you've ever approved of somebody else's sin pick a sin any sin the ground is level at the foot of the cross and as the band comes back up, the bottom line of all of this is that our injustice deserves God's justice. Our injustice actually requires justice. Why? Because if God is infinitely just and infinitely holy, then by the definition of that, every sin and every injustice toward Him must receive justice. So the cross is the greatest demonstration, both of God's evil, both of evil toward God. Let me rephrase that. The cross is the greatest demonstration of mankind's evil toward God, and it's the greatest demonstration of God's love toward us. There's a person from 1953, his name's Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he wrote this about the cross. He said, Will God give man brains to see these things, and will man then fail to exercise his will toward that God? The sorrowful answer is that both of these things are true. God will give man brains to smelt iron and make a hammer, head, and nails. God will grow a tree and give man strength to cut it down and brains to fashion a hammer handle from its wood. And when man has the hammer and the nails, God will put out his hand and let man drive nails through it and place him on a cross in the supreme demonstration that men are without excuse. The reality is that the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on that cross at the hands of sinful people like you and me, is the greatest injustice that has ever incurred. The holy and righteous one who didn't deserve to die did because we accused him. Mankind did. But at that glorious cross, Jesus laid down his life. Jesus died on that cross and Jesus took on the wrath of God. Jesus dealt with the fact that every one of us deserves the wrath of God so that if for whoever calls on him as Lord, he died on that cross and paid the price in full. The wrath of God for those people has been fully consumed. And when God sees you now, he sees you perfect and righteous, even though you're not, even though you sin, even though you've probably sinned today. That is the great exchange. And Jesus didn't stay on that cross. He rose from the dead on the third day, showing that he defeated death and sin once and for all. And so perhaps for somebody here today it's time to look to the cross and accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers you there, going to him and calling on him as Lord for the first time today. If that's for you, in a moment, I'll be praying with you. And for the rest of us, for those who are Christians, my question for you is we just went through a, a very dense chapter on God's wrath is how valuable is it that you've been spared from God's wrath at the cross? How much does it mean to you right now? You know, people will say that the gospel, if you share 95% about God's judgment and wrath, People will experience the weight that they need to understand so that they're looking for a solution. And then you bring the hope of glory of Christ on the back end of that. But it starts with understanding the weight of your sin and what Jesus died for on that cross. How valuable is that for you today? In a moment, we're going to sing a song, and it's talking about building your life on this on this hope, on this rock of Christ. Have that mean something for you today. I'm going to invite you to stand and bow your heads for prayer. How valuable is it that you've been spared from God's wrath at the cross? Maybe it's valuable for you right now because when we look at that passage about worshiping the created things and not the creator, you're like, I'm guilty. (laughs) I have worshiped things like money, or I've worshiped things like entertainment and schedules and sports, and I've worshiped things like science and philosophy. I have tried to become creator of things instead of worshiping the creator. So how valuable is it that Jesus died for that sin that you've committed? And if you're feeling that right now, if you're feeling like, God, forgive me of that yet again, would you raise your hand? Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the sensitive one of forbidden passions. Things between you and only God knows the way that your mind has thought or the things you've done. The lust that you've had for another person that's not your spouse. Maybe other things and Maybe as we go through that, and and you've seen even the same-sex sexual relationships part, it's a heavy topic, and you're just having a hard time right now processing through that. It's kind of like stuck in you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but what I am going to ask is for those that are feeling that heaviness of heart, just take a moment right now and look at the cross and realize that at that cross, Jesus took that sin on. It's no longer something you have to carry anymore. It's not your burden to wear anymore. Jesus did it for you. He paid the price for you. So let's just take a moment and appreciate that and let it go away from a burden on us. And finally, before we sing this final song, perhaps there's somebody here today that for the very first time has grown aware that you deserve the wrath of God, but here comes where the decision needs to be made. Are you going to choose to trust in Jesus as your Lord right now. This is a decision between you and him. You don't need me up here to do anything else. You can go directly to him, but oftentimes when you're hit with that reality, it's good to have a prayer partner. So I'm not going to have you do anything like come up on stage, but if that's you and you want me to pray alongside you, accepting Jesus Christ as Lord, for the first time, would you raise your hand? Lord, we thank you that you spared us from wrath at the cross. God, what a What an act of mercy and love that was. God, thank you for the truth of this word. Thank you for both the position that is clear and thank you for the posture that we see in Jesus that we want to emulate. Thank you that we're a church that is following you as best we can to be authentic, Help us, God, as we navigate through the choppy waters of our culture, as we navigate through terrible injustices that are happening in our world, as we navigate through extending grace and an unconditional welcome to those who are on the outside, often judged. God, we love you and help us in Jesus' name. Amen.